And a very good morning to you. We're live from London. You're with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. And coming up in the next hour, my panellists, Constantine Buhaya and David Badanis will be dissecting the week's main stories. Plus, we'll get the latest from Tokyo. Hello, I'm Fiona Wilson, Monocle's Tokyo correspondent. I'll be talking about hay fever season in Japan and how masks are finally being lifted. And in a moment, we'll be hearing from Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brille, joining us on the line from Marbella. It's the 5th of March, 2023, live from London. This is Monocle on Sunday. And a very warm welcome to your Sunday. I am delighted to say that I've got Constantine Bohaya, who's author and Greek, Greek expert, and the author David Badanis joining me in for a lively hour of radio. How are you, gentlemen? Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good to have you with us. Uh, we were talking about uh, everything that's been happening in the news. I think we'll be talking an awful lot about governmental WhatsApp messages. I know you're both keen to talk about that. Uh, before we dive into that particularly murky set of depths, uh, let's head to somewhere somewhat sunnier. Let's go to Marbella, where we can hear from our editorial director, Tyler Brule. Hola, Tyler. Hola, buenos dias, Emma. Good morning. How are you doing over there? Tell, tell us that there is sunshine and seeing beautiful things. Well, it is, it's almost a sunny morning uh, here. I think uh, give it uh, an hour or two and hopefully uh, this light lid of cloud uh, will, will burn off. But uh, there, is, there is a bit of a, a marking of sunshine uh, this morning. If I look beyond across the med, you can hear probably the waves rolling in and uh, yeah, you've got sort of various ages uh, from sort of, you know, mid-teens to uh, probably pushing 100. Uh, everyone doing their sort of morning rounds, lap cycling up and down uh, the, the track that uh, runs across this uh, stretch of the Mediterranean. So it's a fabulously active place. Tell me what takes you there this weekend. <laughs> what takes me there? Well, it's been a bit of a tour this week. Uh, if, uh, if you, uh, of course, read, read the column uh, it's amazing to think back just a week ago, we, uh, we did our, I think, was, was it our first ever two-hour edition of Monocle uh, on, on Sunday? We were up at Nomad um, in St. Moritz, which seems like a lifetime ago already, um, but it was, it was fantastic. And I think actually a format um, to be repeated, Emma, uh, maybe even with uh, having you, instead of having you in London, I think uh, you need to come along to, uh, of course, read the news and, of course, be a, a sparring partner. We just have to figure out where the venue is going to be next. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm never going to say no to get out, getting out and about, which is, um, which is, you know, always absolutely tempting. So, um, a weekend in Marbella follows a week of uh, a lovely southwest European jaunt. It was absolutely. It was. Uh, I I went um, from yeah mountains. I was in Munich uh, this week. A uh, little bit of a bit of prepping um, for our quality of life conference. Don't want to give too much away yet. Um, but I know we've been talking in terms of Milan, but it might move to another M city. And we're looking at um, at Munich and hoping to put out an announcement quite soon. We'll probably move the date uh, a little bit uh, and uh, we'll probably look at quality of life being early September. So pre-Octoberfest, uh, this means, uh, of course, dirndl season for you. That's absolutely fantastic. Um, I'm, uh, you can see my mind has gone absolutely overdrive now. And yes, the dundle, <laughs> the dundle will be whipped out. And, uh, and yeah, no, we'll, be, we'll be straight out there like a shot. Never say no to a dundle or, or, or a quick trip to, 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 to southern Germany. Um, just to, let's talk a little bit about your column because you went through various stages a of of, of climate because you started off quite cool and it's gradually warmed up the further that you've travelled, but you've been you've been noticing sort of slight tweaks and changes and how people do it well in hotels. Well, yeah, this is this is true. Uh, well, uh, first, um, 
there, there is something about being on the Iberian Peninsula, and there's just pockets of, 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 of Europe which, which do this well. But there is a certain formality that you get in, in Spain, uh, certainly in Portugal as well. It was just, just one of those, those moments when you maybe observe after being in other places that somehow there's just, uh, I don't know, you could say that the, that the dark brown loafer has just been, you know, buffed and looked after properly and the trousers are worn at the right length. And there is something about that Iberian men's hairstyle, which it doesn't matter whether you're seven years old or 77, it's sort of the same. And somehow it just works uh, as well. But I was sort of captivated by just, uh, yeah, that, that sense of just doing things properly and uh, being in a, a classic hotel, which I like very much, which is the Ritz in, in, uh, in Lisbon, the newly reopened, renovated, overhauled um, Villa Magna in uh, in in in, uh, in Madrid, uh, which has been taken over by by Rosewood, and and I guess you know one of those sort of observations at a time when we're you know everywhere you go, of course, we hear about the service crisis and no one wants to work in service, etc. Um, it's fascinating to see that maybe it hasn't bitten quite so hard here. But one of the things that really sort of stood out are actual adults, people who are <laughs> north of forty, north of forty-five, who are doing jobs in service with pride and precision. Uh, and it's not a cast of amateurs like we have in so many other quarters of the world at the moment. And what is it that's keeping these people in such good shape and in jobs? Well, I guess one thing is is a culture of, of service, that there is, there's a pride in doing that type of, of job, that, that to you know, whether you are a doorman at a property or whether you're running front desk, that this is not a stepping stone to an acting career. And, and that there is, you know, and that I think the other side would be that, you know, oftentimes, you know, not, not always the case, but that this is, there's a real sense of sort of family and camaraderie and, and that this is something which, of course, the management and the owners of properties, uh, you know, make sure that they instill a sense of pride in these types of, of positions. The other interesting thing, though, that we, I was talking to some people from the, the Spanish government this week, and you know, they also say they, they, they sort of count their, their, their lucky stars as well that they're also able to, uh, of course, depend on, uh, you know, you say sort of the former Spanish empire uh, as well, that you have, of course, a lot of Colombians, Venezuelans, uh, Mexicans, you know, people coming from all over the world also to work. This is one of the major things that, that has really sort of put them in a very good position for the coming season as well, is that, you know, they are able to offer visas uh, to, to, of course, um, yeah, former family members from all over um, Latin America as well, which, uh, of course, is essential to a country where tourism, of course, is such a, a huge part of the economy. There's also quite an intelligent approach in some sectors of, of hospitality. That If you speak to a few hotel owners or indeed people who work in hotels, there is a, a scheme in Spain, which means that if you work for, let's say, the, the high season from spring to the end of summer, that's fine. But obviously, in lots of cultures, the money stops as soon as the tourists go away and you find yourself, if you work in a hotel, you find yourself out of a job. Whereas there's a scheme in Spain, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that makes sure that you actually get paid a monthly salary for the entire year so that you don't leave the hotel and you don't leave the restaurant. Although you're not working, you're retained. And as a result, you go back the next year and guess what? You're committed to the professional cause. Exactly, and you know, you know where the knives and forks are kept, and you remember the guests, and all of the things that people who are on the receiving end of service also expect. And I think that that is, you know, absolutely essential. You know, on one side, of course, we want to make sure that yes, uh, you you have uh, people who are well looked after. At the same time, as well, 
you know, we, we also have to remember that uh, you need guests that are happy too, uh, who are going to come back and keep the, the whole system working. So it, it's been, it's been fascinating to see. And um, I think just talking a little bit on the, the, the tip about um, events, uh, I know we're just touching on quality of life. Um, there is going to be a bit of a Spain moment coming up. So certainly um, Andrew's been promoting it. Uh, I've been promoting it um, as well. But two events coming up um, to mark the, the launch of our Spain book. Actually, well, it will be three, in fact, Emma. So um, we have Zurich coming up. Um, so we'll be doing um, a special event there to book signing and, of course, um, hopefully um, amazing uh, Pata Negra and good wines uh, as well. And we'll be doing the same thing in London and we'll also be doing the same thing in New York just in the run-up to Another event which we're doing, which is the Monocle Weekender in, uh, in Asheville, North Carolina. One question we do have to ask, as you're prepping for all these fabulous events, um, how much hand cream will be available in the bathrooms? Because this is something <laughs> okay, that you've I, touched I, on I, in, your, in your column. Am I crazy? I don't know. But I, I just thought this is something I've, I've really noticed. I, I can't, it, certainly it's not just happening in the men's bathrooms. But I've just, I think a couple of things have happened in the industry. We've seen this, this sort of, somehow this surge of branded, uh, yeah, branded apothecary products um, in you know, in, you know, in, in hotels, in restaurants. Once upon a time, you just get you know soap out of a dispenser, and I think now it's seen as a branding opportunity. So you every you know every sort of major brand, you know, from you know, Diptyque to you name it, has sort of piled into hotels now, and and are offering well, it's, you know, they should be just offering hand soap, but somehow there's you know, like sized dispensers. With similar branding on them, you'd have to sort of, you know, really squint or have a telescope. And one says open, one says hand cream. But I sort of think, I don't know, three or four years ago, there was not this like surge in have hand cream in every single bathroom. There was just soap and paper towels or or a hand dryer. And now you sort of have to sort of, you know, faff around figure out which which is which. But it raises a bigger question: How moisturized do you need to be to go back to the dinner table? Well, it makes you wonder, what's, your gonna, hands, anyway. well, it might make you wonder what's going to happen to your hands when you actually hit the, hit any handles, because then it all goes a bit funny. The issue well, that I... Yeah, handles, <laughs> handles, you know, cutlery could go flying. But I, I you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's sort of left a bit of a question mark. But, why all of this hand cream? I have a question about hand cream as well, because in, it, there's a lot of pump dispensers in public places now. There are. So many pump dispensers. And I don't know if you've ever got it mixed up so that I thought I was reaching for the hand sanitizer and got hand cream. And instead of having clean hands, I had slippy hands or vice yes. versa, that you reach for the hand cream and instead you, ha- you are effectively flayed in the bathroom. <laughs> well, exactly. And then I thought maybe, you know, maybe... I, I don't know when the whole sort of hand cream surge started, but was this also just a way of you know, figure out how do we repurpose all of those, you know, empty ethanol bottles? I, I'm not sure what, what it's all about, but anyway. Tyler, have a wonderful uh, weekend in Marbella. We'll speak Thanks, to you very Emma. soon. Uh, that was our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, with the softest hands in Europe, I think we could wildly say. Uh, let's bring in Constantine and David. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you on hand cream? Constantine, I, big well, fan? I'm afraid I did it this morning. <laughs> And I'm not sure why, because I can still, I'm not sure whether I'm sweating or whether it's the, the, the cream. And the word unguous comes to mind. It's not so great. Uh, so I'm picking up my pen, my pencil, and they slip, slither up or down the fingers. Mm. Uh, I'm not a fan of hand cream, I must admit. There's a need, there's a need sometimes. I wonder whether it's an in-evening thing, because I don't know if you apply hand cream and then jump on public transport and everything just goes a bit <laughs> awful. David, what are your thoughts on hand cream? Have you ever been asked about hand cream before? Uh, you know, there's many events that uh, uh, one has the first time in life. 
And uh, this is my first time discussing hand cream. What I'm excited about hand cream is I've never touched hand cream in my life. And I can even say that neither you nor Tyler have ever touched hand cream. The reason is the hand cream doesn't actually get onto your body. It floats above the electrons on the tips of your fingers. In fact, I'll go even further. Not only has hand cream never touched your fingers, but can we do a high five? Yes, of course. High five. Our hands did not touch. It seemed that they touched, but it turns I, out... I thought that was a high five, but go and explain to yes. me why you and I have not touched. Because the uh, uh, electrons on the uh, palm of your hand got really, 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 really... When I say really, I mean really, really, really close to the electrons on my hand. <sighs> but then they pushed themselves away. They pushed apart. In fact, so we never touched that. In fact, you've never touched another human being in your life. You've come extremely close, but you haven't touched it. Do you think you might be sitting in a chair now? Our readers might... Our listeners might feel they're standing on the floor. They're hovering above the floor, and I don't want to speak about your posterior, but I'm, can I say the word tush? Yes. My tush is not touching this chair. It is floating a tiny fraction of a centimeter above it. Uh, I was prompted by this by fast rechargers for telephones in the news. And I thought, electrons are our friends. Do we pay attention to them? Do we thank them enough? I don't think so. How did we find out that we're not touching? Uh, it, it turns out there was a, a, a guy who the Scots say is Scottish, uh, James Clark Maxwell in the 1800s, who first worked this out. Um, uh, he didn't like Scotland, and he did much of his work at Cambridge in England. But once he got famous, the Scots were very, very fond of him. Okay. He was... Go, uh, yeah, he, he was at a small town in Scotland for, uh, uh, for a while, for one year at one point, and he said, unfortunately, I made a joke. That was a large mistake. Right. Okay. And he discovered that we don't actually touch. It would become very, 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 very close. That's quite a nice feeling. Um, but, but I'll stay with you. Constantine, I have no idea where we're going to go with this, so let's, let's just go with it. So if, if we were to touch, what actually would be happening? Would we would we all sort of fuse into one? Or is this uh, is this what keeps us? Is this what keeps it? You know, the, the headphones on my head that are currently you know resting on my ears without them sort of like fusing with the rest of the body. Totally. Have you ever seen the film Ghost? Remember with Whoopi Goldberg and stuff? There's these like ghost-like people in New York City, and they they can walk through walls and stuff. On the other hand, when they sit on benches, the, their tushes also are suspended above the benches, so vertically they can walk through walls and touch people as ghosts, but they still walk on the floor. So the the, the way that one electron push against another electron is why the, we don't fall to the center of the earth. It's why um, uh, our clothes don't like slip down through our bodies, etc. Normally, you would think, ah, this is a nerdy thing just for scientists. But controlling electrons produced the internet. It produced WhatsApp. Because um, uh, in the internet, we are just shooting electrons around, uh, controlling these little friends. It'd be like some really, really eager puppy dogs that uh, built everything in our society. Teeny, teeny, tiny little ones and lots of them. Constantine, where do we go with these teeny tiny internet dogs? Well, <laughs> I'm what we do. um, Hancock and Calandula could say, well, in fact, we never touched. Correct. Oh, yes. yes. You know, oh. How can you possibly hold this against us? You, Matt Hancock needs David Badanis. <laughs> exactly. Right, okay, that's taken us straight there because the internet suggests otherwise and so, so did the CCTV that they, they didn't d just touch, they touched with a capital T. Uh, yes, they groped. <laughs> lived off the fruits of love and Stop through the it, skins. Oh, Stop oh, it. <laughs> Too much. But never even touched. Um, it, it's really icky, this story, isn't it? For those of you who haven't been uh, swimming through the Daily Telegraph, it had another mega scoop this week uh, where all, I think it was 10,000 WhatsApp messages exchanged uh, among senior government figures from the former Health Secretary, Matt Hancock. It was 100,000. It was 100,000. That's a long evening, isn't it? Yeah. Um, they, were, they were made public by the woman who is uh, writing Matt Hancock's 
autobiography, ghostwriting it, a woman called Isabel Oakeshott, uh, who I don't think many people are going to be trusting with many more secrets in the, in the, in the, in the future. Um, she had 100,000 WhatsApp messages from Matt Hancock to everybody else during lockdown, and he handed them all over to her, and then she decided that it was in the public interest to break her NDA and tell the whole world about them. And we have been diving into a world of more than hand cream and hand sanitizer, haven't we, Constantine? We've been given really good not it's good, a, but thorough insights into what's going on. Yes, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a window into how government officials, how government ministers work when you follow these, these texts. Um, the Telegraph did this superb job in the layout of the te- balancing the text messages with sort of half-page images and um, explanations and opinions. And rather, where, where you admire the art of the, or, and the, the layout artists... What comes out, I think, is that it's uh, from being anti, uh, from being a Brexiteer, it went out to being identifying, uh, then it went into um, being anti-lockdown, and that I found worrying. And just, just, I mean, there, there are certain questions, you know, that come out, uh, you know, to mind. Do we have tears for Hancock, cheers for Gavin Williamson, booze for Oakshot, old shoes for Boris, and how, how do we? view each one of the characters because mm, they do become characters in a play don't yeah, they, they do which yes. is unfort which is so very strange so. given that this time three years ago they were very much a real part in the exactly. way that they were going to be steering our lives for a very very long time david uh, you know it was famously said you should never see sausages or laws being uh, uh, being created you shouldn't look backstage uh, elizabeth the first when you mentioned uh, um, uh, mirrors and windows she said she's not going to use torture to take windows into to open windows into men's uh, souls uh, poor matt hancock was caught between a uh, uh, very few people uh, so put those words together poor matt hancock but I was he was about caught- to say that's a, that's that, that that requires a little bit of thought in a he moment. was he was caught between two worlds uh, when he was growing up there weren't uh, whatsapp messages and they wouldn't be locked in and held forever. And they certainly, things you said privately, casually on the phone, were not going to be uh, displayed in the uh, pages of the, the Daily Telegraph later. The younger generation now is totally used to that. They Hopefully they'd be more circumspect about what they say. He was sort of in between. What we're getting is the, um, uh, the revelation of what was going on uh, behind the scenes. So not only do we find out what he was personally thinking and doing, we see that the government itself gave an appearance on the outside of, um, I don't know, following science and being sensible. But inside there was all this, you know, collusion and arguments and fighting. Boris Johnson did a, a genius uh, uh, thing. He gave the appearance that he was being honest all the way down, you know, the, the scruffy hair and that, uh, that, that sort of uh, avuncular, friendly, easygoing look. But in fact, as these WhatsApp messages show, that wasn't true. It was a very, well, it's always been a very deliberate approach from, from Boris Johnson. The, the, the minute that you interview him, he ruffles his hair. Uh, to me, it had worked. Because when I was first uh, uh, first became aware of him, uh, I, I was unaware that it was artifice. I didn't know, for example, that he would ruffle his hair. I thought, oh, here's somebody speaking honestly from the inside. Uh, but it was it, it was a pretense. It wasn't that. The danger of somebody speaking honestly from the inside, uh, uh, Donald Trump was one of the people famous for using informal language in public. All sorts of presidents in the past and prime ministers would certainly swear and use terrible language in private, but they knew that in public you weren't supposed to do that. And there's a significance there. When you... Think Things you do in private, that's your own volition. Things you do in public, you're responding to what's expected and what's right. When you have politicians who no longer make that a barrier, then they say, well, my own volition can come true. I can prorogue parliament if I want. Uh, How do you pronounce that word? I think it's prorogue. 
But, That's incredible. But someone's going to write in. That's I, I, yeah. <laughs> I, it's one of those words. It's like if you speak a foreign language and you see certain sounds coming up, you skid like a cartoon character around to avoid that sound. Or you get it right and then collapse in the in the ensuing words. Totally. You, yeah, that, that's a broadcaster's. Um, a broadcaster's problem. Um, there's that issue, isn't there? The, the, the fact that we see, we saw the sausage machine, Constantine. We have seen how government worked during lockdown. And I wonder how surprised we are all by by this. Because when you... I remember about a week before lockdown, I saw Matt Hancock walking around the back of Horse Guards Parade. He didn't look like a man in massive control. But that was just the fact that he was walking with about three advisors who were all screaming into his ear. And he, he, he did look like a man who was facing a pandemic. This was something that none of us expected. So how much leeway do we give to a government that it, it was literally making things up as we went al- as it went along? Um, I think what we are reading now is, is it entertainment or should we be shocked by it? I think we should be shocked by it and grateful that it has been revealed uh, and be able to judge what is fact and what is opinion and, and what has been published. Um, and with, uh, with Hancock, I came across him as well in December... 2020 I was heading to, towards the farmer's market he was walking towards me as one does and as, um, he didn't have any shopping I think he was jogging with, with either his bodyguard his advisor or, or, or someone and uh, what, he, what I clearly heard him say is people walking through hospital doors now is nothing compared to what is coming that's what he said sorry that was on the 2nd of January um, 2021 and all this came into focus with these uh, with these revelations, um, because this was a man, I thought, who was clearly concerned about the impact of the pandemic at a time when myself and many other people felt uh, the government just wanted you dead if you weren't useful, uh, you know, uh, which of course it didn't. But that in, in, in the frenzy of the moment, that that's what um, one could have been uh, thoughts that would have gone through one's head. Um and I'm very grateful for the sausage factory. <clears throat> but, David, are you happy with this sausage, sausage factory being exposed to us? Uh, there, there is a, a strength and a weakness. Uh, the strength is that we, um, we can judge them uh, by, by, by higher standards. We can say, that's really not how it's supposed to be done. Um, uh, in one of the WhatsApp messages that came out, that when Dominic Cummings took his trip wildly violating the lockdown and making a mockery of what many people did, Matt Hancock's first response was to check with his PR advisors if this would give him promotion if he backed them up. And uh, the the messages came out and his PR advisor said, that's excellent. If you back them up, there's a good chance you might get a promotion. So that was those standards rather than objective standards. So it's nice to have that call to account. And hopefully there's areas we think of as, I don't know, nuclear engineers and some other fields where you want people to do objective standards rather than the phony ones. So that's the good part. The bad part is it uh, lowers a a belief in uh, democratic institutions, especially among younger people who haven't seen good governments and bad governments and, and, and the oscillations back and forth. In the United States, uh, there was f- a fairly strong belief in the government up until the Vietnam War. It was consistently 70 or 80 or 90 percent believed that if the government said something was really important, one could follow it. And that was significant for all sorts of trust and social cohesion. Uh, when that goes, it's really, really hard to bring it back. One question I want to ask you is about the, the, that reaction that Matt Hancock just gave to, to when Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson's uh, right-hand man, went... Mm-hmm on a rather uh, misjudged trip a long way up the United Kingdom when everybody was staying at home. But there was also the revelation that when the pictures of him with his hands all over his now partner, Mm -hmm. 
at the time he was still married to his former wife. Um, the, the, the text messages that are being uh, revealed here is it was not, there was no sense of him assuming responsibility and raising his hands and saying, I've done this, I'm really sorry, coming clean, basically. There were there was the most spectacular discussions about oh, whether we broke the one meter or the two meter yes. rule and he he went down to the can we get out of this with with a technicality and it leads to the question that when you are in power and i know that you've written about this do you is there a sense that you're actually above everybody else uh, uh, this is the great danger. Uh, a vast number of people speak about your magnificence. Uh, if you've ever been uh, uh, briefly inside what they call the bubble, it's very excited. People guarding you, everything being done, you don't need cash. And people smile eagerly uh, um, uh, when they're around you. At one point, I worked with a venture capital group that was funding startups in Britain. And whenever I'd go into a room, people thought, this man can maybe bring me $10 million. They were really nice to me. Turned out they liked my jokes. Um, and it goes to your head. It's really, really hard to avoid. Did you bring them $10 million? Only the deserving ones. It had nothing to do with the dinners and smiles. Uh, but it's almost, it's really, really hard not to be distorted, um, especially if people haven't had valid careers elsewhere. Okay. So there is that issue, isn't there? And we, we were talking about this before we came on out, how we would, um, how if you were ma managing this, whether you would actually advise, I think this is what George Osborne, the former chancellor, um, advised Matt Hancock, is just say sorry. Yes. Um, just, to, just to carry on, uh, before I go into the, the sorry bit, uh, Malcolm Rifkin, a former British uh, Foreign Secretary, he said he knew he was out of power and he was out of office when he was sitting at the back of the car and it wouldn't start. Because usually, you know, you go in the back of the car and the chauffeur's at the front and you, it takes off. So the, 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 the contrast... Saying sorry, I thought there was an industry of saying sorry, uh, that, you know, people are, politicians are taught how to say sorry. And you felt this with Boris Johnson. Well, if we cock up, we just say, oh, sorry, lads, I overdid it, shouldn't have done it. But hey, let's carry on. Um, it's a little formulaic sometimes just to say sorry. It's sorry, yes, and then? Mm. What are you going to do about so it? So it's a sense of ownership and responsibility. Yes. If you have done something, then say sorry, but then you have to do something about it. Yes. David? Uh, uh, um, if I can go back to probably one of the uh, worst immigrants in Britain ever, it'd be Karl Marx. And he talked about how much is something worth? On the one hand, you could say it's worth the, its use, you know, what, it's, what are, you can actually do with it. A house is something you can live in. It's worth some money for that. Or it can be used what you can get for it on the market. A house is whatever you can rip off other people to, to sell for. And in politics, it's the same thing. You want to feel that people are uh, making ethical decisions on good ethical grounds. Ooh, I've wronged my wife and kids. I shouldn't do this. That was a terrible thing to do. And I'm being unkind uh, to this other person. So that's the use, the actual real connection. The other thing is exchange, what I can get away with. And both of those are possible ways up in power. We've seen when well, we talk about chancers in, in, in politics. Uh, they, this thing about what you can get by with, in, with impressions sadly is effective. If the uh, population had better uh, judgment and uh, it's not the flaw of the ordinary person, if the news media uh, and uh, perhaps controls on social media were better, then we'd be able to judge it. Uh, Churchill famously was a sincere person. We might disagree with him, but you knew where uh, you were, and he didn't try to get away with just uh, finagling off to the side. It's, it, so instead of like horizontally, uh, you can put it this way. Somebody said you could walk around with either a gyroscope inside, which is a moral compass, or you can have tiny little radar uh, things on your, on your head, sending out electrons, I point out, 
Um, that don't touch anything. Don't touch anything. Just uh, trying to assess what uh, works around you. We know that in governments in the last uh, few administrations, what's the way for a backbencher to rise up? To go to number 10 and forthrightly say what they actually think? Or instead to go to number 10 and manipulate the relationship to get a promotion? And it's interesting, isn't it, Constantine, that we live in a world now, arguably this is this was something that worked, that came from the Conservative government, that actually not even saying sorry or... or or actually making any public comment was the, was the way that things went forward. I can't tell you how many times you listen to the radio and say something really bad has been, you know, the government has been accused of doing something absolutely shockingly terrible, but no one from the government will talk to us. Now, that is A, frustrating, but B, it undermines trust, doesn't it? And the, the, the trust bond has gone. Not that there was a great one before, but when you have someone saying, I'm not even going to address this, it's great for them because actually the, the, the heat fades and, the world and the journalists move on, but it has a more long-term poisonous effect, surely. Um, there's interesting the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son who takes his inheritance from the father. He goes and spends it all, women, wine, parties, loses it, ends up living with the, with, uh, in a pigsty, returns to the father and says, sorry, I blew it all uh, and I'm back again. And then... How do we feel towards the prodigal son? And should it be the story of the prodigal son or the forgiving father? Because it's the father who in the end forgives and takes him back home. So is it sorry coming from the ministers, from the politicians? Or is it the um, the head of state who says, it's okay, uh, you can come back to the fold? Or in fact, um, the, the, the public, is the public that says, okay, you've said enough, sorry, we've seen you, that you have... Um, reformed and we will accept you back again and i think the story of the prodigal son keeps playing again and again and again then you have the other brother the goody brother who says hey what about me <laughs> i've been doing all my uh i've been helping you and i've been and i haven't done anything i haven't been out with with uh women and partying and drugs etc why don't you look at me at all it's um it's an interesting And how much situation. does the prodigal son play through in politics now? Because you do have reformed, rinsed, whatever you might describe them, characters going away with what is effectively a very short memory that we now have in politics, I, David. I, I, I think the, the short memory is the key. Uh, people like you, Emma, are, exactly. are crucial uh, because you, you need to hold people to it. We have it, the internet. Uh, the internet has been known to have the memory which makes goldfish seem like wise, astute elephants. Uh, David Hume in the 1700s said, what's the difference between England and France? Uh, in France, what's the way to get ahead? It's to suck up to the aristocracy and the king. So you get people who are really good at dancing and laughing at royal jokes. In Britain in the 1700s, the way to get up is to be really good at commerce, make new products that work well. And he said there was a fundamental difference. Uh, in recent uh, uh, administrations, there's been a reverse. We'll have much more from David and Constantine in a moment. But first, let's head to Tokyo. I am delighted to say that our senior Asia editor, Fiona Wilson, joins us now for a bit of a check-in from Japan. A very good afternoon to you, Fiona. How's, how's uh, Tokyo looking this fine afternoon, this fine Sunday? Hi, Emma. Great to hear you. I feel like spring is finally around the corner here. So that's how it's looking. Very suddenly turned very, very warm here. So, um, yes, I've got the hay fever sniffles. Um, so <laughs> I'm clutching a tissue, but... Uh, Apart from that, all good. Well, thank you for your courage in, in broadcasting with the sniffles. That's that's always an uphill struggle. So thank you. we're very, very grateful. It seems so strange that, you know, we've just heard from Tyler in Marbella where he's looking out at the med and there's, there's the sun and there's going to be a little bit of warmth. Uh, here in the United Kingdom, I think, I don't think we've quite emerged yet from monochrome yet. So 
we are absolutely ready, I think, to finish with winter. I think many of us are bored with it. So what's the spirit like in Japan where you have, okay, you have the sniffles, but you have a little bit more, you know, the sun greets you a little bit earlier every morning with a bit more warmth. Yeah, no, it's 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 actually looking rather nice. The park near where the office is, we there is a little, a small patch of plum blossom at the moment, and people are ready to get out there and picnic. So as you know, you know the hanami, the big cherry blossom season, that's still to come. It's coming a little bit earlier. We're all following the day. It's coming a bit earlier than usual this year, um, and you know people are ready. So they're already out today. People were picnicking under these these early blossoms, deep pink blossoms that people love so much and i mean you could hardly move for photographers kids doing photo shoots um it was quite a scene the trouble is though is that that beauty that we're all terribly excited about and everyone is trying to get a plane out to go and see this before all the tourists come back again um you're all sneezing and coughing and spluttering in the background and everyone's got goggles and masks on again it seems like there's two parallel narratives here well it's such a strange situation so every year you know in february it really kicks off end of february you get this cedar pollen that just is released en masse and 40% of the Japanese population is suddenly sniffing, yeah, as you say, wearing goggles. I did see someone on a bike wearing what looked like uh, science lab goggles uh, the other day. You know, we're spraying our faces, we're all wearing masks. Um, this, this hay fever, and it's far worse than usual this year. So in Tokyo, they reckon there's twice as much pollen as usual. It was very hot last summer, and that's what dictates how much pollen there will be in hay fever season. I, I, I never used to suffer, and now um, I'm I'm definitely one of the 40%, so I now feel full sympathy. I think I ignored it before, um, but uh, no, very much uh, uh, in, in sort of deep now. So, oh, How boring. I mean, what should be an absolutely wonderful time of life when everything's coming back out again? Um, Fiona, I've got David Badanis uh, signalling that he wants to join into the into the game. David, what do you want to say? I'm very excited by your pollen, and I think uh, you don't realise <laughs> what, what is happening inside your nose. It turns out poor pollen uh, escapes from the tree. It has a brief moment of life, and what it wants is sex. And when it lands on the <laughs> mucosal membranes in our nose, it thinks, I am happy baby. Come to mama. So the pollen what's happening is the pollen is having a very happy moment. Your body up Fiona's, is... Up Fiona's nose. Up Fiona's nose. And now the, your body is saying, this is really highly inappropriate. Absolutely. And pours out uh, histamines and all sorts of things like that, which produces an irritation. So what you as the large person observing is like somebody in a helicopter over a restaurant where about 85 million bad dates are going on at the exact same moment. Fiona, it's all going on up your nose. <laughs> I'm absolutely on the floor laughing here. It's not just in my nose. I mean, they're having an absolute party in my eyes as well. So it's a uh, full orgy in my face. Oh, Fiona, uh, keep it keep it away from the children. Um, <laughs> after that, is it actually affecting the way that people are going about, you know, given the fact that it's all kicking off in, in Japan in so many different ways? Is it actually stopping people from going about their lives? I mean, suddenly now that we know what's really going on, I'm surprised anybody goes outside. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I, you know, I, as I was saying, I feel like I've developed this uh, hay fever quite recently. And apparently, you know, twice as many people suffer in Tokyo, you know, maybe compared to 20 years ago. So it is worse. And, and, and you know, people have worked out, you know, what it means to the economy. Productivity is a bit lower. People feel a bit groggy sometimes, partly because of the medication they're taking. Now I feel guilty saying I feel bad. I should be, you know, happy to be part of nature's cycle, obviously. But um, <laughs> it is—it's a little bit tough, and I have to say, it is very noticeable this year. You would—you would go past a, say, a, a black car, and you'll see a little film of uh, yellow over it at the moment. So 
it's very noticeable this year. I must stop whinging, I feel. No, it's, it's, um, you're completely within, within your rights to do so. David, I'm going to ask you this question. I'm not entirely sure why I'm asking this question. Um, Fiona says that the, the, the pollen is a lot more active than it was 20 years ago. What, what, is, what has prompted this, this, this fruity behaviour by pollen? I, I I have to think it's the um, uh, the Obama administration releasing reducing the the moral <laughs> certitude in our society. That's at least I'm guessing what Fox News would say. Okay, thank you very much indeed for that, Constantine. You wanted you wanted um, to add something? Fiona, here here in England, um, the damson trees or in bushes are in full blossom, so you get bursts of white with no pollen. Should I add um, in a sort of bleak monochromic landscape? So I suppose that's our. Who would have thought this has all gone? This has all gone very wrong. Sorry, Fiona, you were going to say something. <laughs> no, I was going to say it's just the idea of the monochromatic sort of landscape because actually, you know, you really feel now that, you know, tourism's really kicked off, cherry blossoms around the corner. You know, it, it just feels like it'll be no time till, um, till summer's here. And of course, you know, this point in Japan, it's the end of the school year. So everything's sort of feeling like it's coming to an end. And then 1st of April, everything starts up again. The new financial year, university term starts, school year starts. So, um, you know, it feels like a lot of change. And, you know, by the time the kids go back to school this April, um, they won't have to wear masks for the first time in a long time. So they'll finally discover what their their classmates actually look like. This is important, isn't it? Because if you are a Japanese pupil you have been at school for three years now well your schooling if you've been into school has been has been masked for three years now yeah i mean and they and they have pretty much been in solidly we didn't have the kind of lockdown you had say in in the uk so they have been at school they've had yeah they've been they've been fully masked poor things they've been having these very sad little lunches where they have to sit at their own desk not talk too much. Um, and I think it's going to be a fantastic change for them. I think everyone's ready. Numbers of infections are just so down here. It's it's like everywhere. It's really negligible now. And I think everyone's ready. Now, whether people will actually be able to, I don't know. I think it's going to be quite hard for people, adults really, to lose the mask. I think kids will be happy to rip them off. But Adults, hmm, we'll see. Really, David, do you want to step in on the issue of masks? Oh, uh, the I was just thinking about the, the cherry blossoms. Mm. In a sense, uh, with the WhatsApp messages we were talking about earlier, we're eavesdropping on a communication which wasn't aimed for us. Cherry blossoms are a communication not aimed for us. Uh, the, the the trees are they have their own interests, and they're signaling uh, various insects and other things to 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 do certain unmentionable functions. Um, we are like staring in on a lurid X-rated stuff all the time. The cherry blossoms uh, were uh, uh, around long before human beings evolved. You could say in a good way, it's a pleasure we get to watch this going on. There's a great deal going on in the animal and natural kingdom in the ecological world that's invisible to us. Uh, Invisible chemicals coming out and slow or quick cycles of life. But the cherry blossoms allow us to catch a fragment. It would be like if we um, uh, backstage saw the WhatsApp messages, not of Manhattan, not of Matt Hancock, but of Cicero and William Shakespeare. Thank you for that, uh, David. Do you feel uh, Do you feel suitably, uh, I don't know, enlivened, Fiona, by what we're hearing in, coming from London? Absolutely. I like the poetic turn this is taking. I mean, what's interesting is by the time cherry blossom comes around, I will be well shot of hay fever. I will be thoroughly enjoying it. And, you know, and it is this great spring spectacle where everyone's sitting under these trees. Um, and they are spectacular. It's interesting how it's not for us that, that I'm sure you're absolutely right about that. But we do take full advantage, um, swamp the poor trees and uh, eat and drink under them. And I think it will be a, a big old party this year. How have the tourists come back yet, Fiona? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the neighborhood that the Monocle office in is is rammed. You can't move for Instagrammers. People, we're, we're in the coffee belts here. There's just so many people having their coffee, taking photos of themselves having coffee, uh, taking photos of the cafe. So it really feels like uh, things are picked up. So you're seeing a lot of people around now. And, and I think, you know, Cherry Blossom this year, I will be going to Kyoto, uh, which is sort of the, the ultimate Cherry Blossom experience. Uh, and I imagine it will be uh, it will be very busy. Fiona Wilson in Tokyo with a very lively nose. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle on Sunday. Monocle's fresh out of the blocks March issue asks if the automotive industry is heading in the right direction with an in-depth dive into the future of electric vehicles, plus the potholes along the way. Elsewhere in the issue, we offer a common-sense manifesto for the future of business that's more bulls and bears than it is unicorns and fancy valuations. Plus, architect Ivan Ivanov's new Aussie vernacular, a crafty new inn in Fukuoka, and a review of Europe's best new factories for fashion brands looking to make it at home. Buy the issue today or do the right thing and subscribe so you never miss a beat. Head to monocle.com slash subscribe for more. Welcome back to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, and joined in the studio by Constantine Buhaya and David Badanis. Constantine, uh, you are a journalist who specialises in, in, in covering Greek news. Um, so obviously we have to touch on this awful, awful train crash this, this week, made all the more relevant to many of us outside Greece because it is a train that... It's not a local train. It's not a tiny train. This is a mainline service between Athens and Thessaloniki, which is something that an international community would would rely on just to be part of um, Athens' safe infrastructure. Yeah, um, my latest book is actually on Cyprus, Culture Smart Cyprus. It includes Cyprus and parts of Turkey. No, it's tragic. Uh, and what is much more tragic is that it was basically young people who lost their lives after a peak uh, time of celebration, uh, youth celebration, carnival time in Greece, and heading back to university full of fantastic memories, and they crashed. Prior to that, in 2003, um, a coach had crashed, killing um, 60, um, about 20, 21 uh, 16-year-old children around the same spot. And before that, a football team, uh, football fans had crashed and killing in early 20s, uh, about six, seven people there. It, it's, 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 it's a... It's a spot to be, to be. It's almost, it's almost cursed, so to speak. But what is, mo- but the major curse is the Greek civil service um, and uh, the inefficiency of the Greek state to put right a collapsing uh, railway system. Um, well, the government have said that it is austerity, which is behind a collapsing railway system. They haven't mentioned the fact that it's collapsing, but they have just said, you know, it, it, it had contributed to a lack of investment in the railways. They received, I think, at least 70 million from the European Union to put things right. Um, they, s- they privatized it to an Italian firm. Um, they misspent money buying um, dodgy um, is it, uh, engines. Um, and this is not just this government. This is every single government before and now. And uh, this is going to affect the government's uh, electoral chances 
it is the elections are coming up on April the 9th, or is it the 6th or the 9th? And uh, what's happening there is that um, where it was expecting to have uh, the majority in Parliament, it may have to eventually end up in a coalition government, which wouldn't be very good, simply because of, of this um, tragedy. So this could fundamentally change the direction of Greece's politics in one tragic moment? Yes. Um, what would it change from and to? It would have to. It would go into coalition. It may bring to coalition more extreme parties, not fascist or Nazis. I hasten to add, um, at a time when there's a there's a lingering crisis and uh, reforms are badly needed. Reforms which the current government of uh, uh, Mr. Mitsotakis has promised um, to, to implement, and therefore these reforms will not be implemented quite as efficiently, if at all, if there is a coalition. I mean, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, the, the Greek Prime Minister, ostensibly to the outside world at least, appears dynamic and open and making Athens and the rest of the, the, the country very ready for business. It, he's been instrumental in making a country which was facing dreadful um, uh, economic crises barely a decade ago to actually being back open for business. But if you are Greek, how different is it for you? In Greece, well, there are still <clears throat> there's still a brain drain. Uh, people are still going to Germany, Sweden, and we're talking about skilled people. We're talking doctors, skilled technicians, um, academics. In that respect, it hasn't changed that much. On the other hand, there's a slight trickle going back to Greece because they impl- they wish they wish to encourage tax wise um, re- returnees to Greece, um, and what all governments have done and and Mitsotakis has pursued is to create solid alliances in the region. So it's closer alliances, um, obviously with America and with Israel, and um, creates a, a sort of a an a Pax Eastern European Pax um, environment, and also um, the um, train crash and uh, earthquake diplomacy with Turkey. Greeks have helped the Turks with this uh, uh, awful earthquake which they had. The Turks offered their sympathy and their help to, for the Greek train crash, and there's a lot of goodwill. Um, so th- overall, I think there's a, it's a positive climate for Greece to have a stable government with a majority in Parliament. And if the train crash has derailed this, it would be a sad moment for Greece. We are nonetheless, David, aren't we, looking at you, you just mentioned Constantine, the, the Turkey-Syria earthquake, that um, in a time when leaders are looking for re-election, to have an, uh, in, in, you know, in the earthquake, case of an earthquake, a reasonably unexpected event to take place, and in the case of a train crash, if there's been bad infrastructure maintenance, something that was a, an accident waiting to happen, this can absolutely change the way that a leader uh, leader's fate is determined, isn't it? Uh, 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 if you remember, there was a huge earthquake in New Mexico City a, a generation ago, and um, it wasn't a natural disaster. A natural disaster is something that comes from the 
the, the nature and affects everybody. In Mexico City, uh, buildings stood, which followed the construction codes, uh, codes, and buildings fell, which did not. And there were vast numbers which fell, which did not. And it was up to uh, bribery and corruption. And people, the government couldn't spin away from that. WhatsApp messages and advisors could not get away from the, the equivalent of those, could not get away from that problem. So the quote-unquote advantage of these terrible natural disasters, it's sort of like losing a war. It shows up dictatorships. Saddam Hussein, when he ran Iraq, could say that he was magnificent, that nobody was going to say opposite. But it turns out the army was based on nothing. It's, it, well, it, we've seen it in Russian, Russia as well, mm-hmm. that everybody was terrified that Russia would take three days to take Ukraine, and a year later we're still there. Totally. Does it show up dictatorships, or does it also show up an inherent weakness in government? Um, I, I think it shows up, uh, we were talking earlier about the uh, uh, the way, uh, uh, Constantine, you were mentioning, when an ex-minister gets in the back of a car and assumes there's a chauffeur, and there was no chauffeur. So it goes to the heads of everybody, but it's especially bad in dictatorships, because there's not even the pretense of being uh, forced uh, uh, to follow what's going on. Having said that, dictators often, especially if they don't come from a famous family, are extremely nervous people. They have nothing to fall back on. If you're from a famous family or even from a certain network, you can fall back on that. If you're democratically elected, there's proof around you the majority of people kind of like you. If you've taken office in a small coup, you're based on nothing except those who can support you. It does ask a question, though, that you know, we are not for one moment suggesting that Prime Minister Mitsotakis has allowed power to go to his head in the way that you have just described there. But you've written a book about can you be a leader and still be a nice person? Mm-hmm. At what point does it actually change? That you, or does it change at all? Can you be a, a nice person throughout your, yeah. throughout so, your leadership? So sadly in that book, um, uh, uh, nice itself won't do. So for example, suppose there's a good minister in Greece or in Turkey who realizes we have to just get rid of some of the corruption in the civil service and with, with uh, construction firms because much of the civil service is good people, and many construction firms are really good, solid people. If you're merely nice, you'll write directives and say, I hope something good happens. That's not enough. So you need you need to be uh, firm, but in, in a decent direction. I suppose that's the conclusion of the book. And how much, can, and how much um, is there, has there been sort of good governance in, in Greece for the last few years? I think the, the way that the Greeks, for example, stood up to the large European Union machine and Angela Merkel when they were in desperate need of of being bailed out financially. There was that real sense from the outside, at least, that if you looked at them for right, for wrong, they were a country that would fight very, very hard for their people. Yes, and there were lots of solidarity movements um, in Britain, demonstrations in support of Greece. The cartoonists were divided, either slightly racist attack on, on the Greek uh, work ethos, which wasn't exactly fair, um, and in support of, uh, of Greece and against... Um, the dastardly institutions of the European Union that jumped to milk Greece for everything it could. Uh, I think the climate is getting much better. Um, investors are moving in, uh, but they're moving perhaps just in the in the uh, uh, entertainment and the tourist sector rather than uh, what they've been dying to have, which is. Uh, uh, artificial intelligence that they wish to, to develop and lots of other industries and um, pharmaceutical industries which they haven't been able um, or interested in, uh, in 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 promoting and pursuing because of various it's it's almost as if the Greeks if something good happens that's uh, like an, an investment they, they have to go and sink it <laughs> they have to go, uh, because what happens with investment is you have an investment you have good people coming in in an area which is not used to having sound efficient people and then you feel threatened by them 
Um, so you'd rather not have that investment and retain your own points of reference, which are not exactly uh, the, 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 the most sound, rather than be displaced or have the fear of being displaced by talent and external funding. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, joined in the studio by Constantine Buhaya and David Badanis. Uh, David, let's move on to a story that you wanted to talk about. Uh, the rewriting of children's literature has been huge in the headlines in the last couple of weeks because of the fact that Roald Dahl, beloved for generations of children with a mischievous imagination, and indeed their parents, has suddenly been told, posthumously, that the words in his books, are now inappropriate for a 2023 audience? It's difficult. The, um, uh, 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 as a writer myself, to, uh, to sympathise with, uh, with publishers is, uh, is, uh, is a huge moral leap. Just explain but, to us what words that people find so now, now find so objectionable inside a, inside a Roald Dahl book. Yeah, so uh, the Roald Dahl stories are incredibly catchy. There, there's a reason that they sold so well. Some of the words are uh, seem extremely objectionable. Uh, he, he might use like uh, certain racist words and stuff. Some words uh, are, are marginal. Uh, many people now don't feel bad if you use the word fat. Uh, quite a lot, a lot of people today do, do feel bad if you use the word fat. So that's a recently contentious thing. Um, but uh, there's also the deeper thing about some of his attitudes. A lot of people um, uh, will find in Roald Dahl's are certain attitudes of snobbery or anti-city or anti-immigrant feelings. So there's layers and layers and layers. So the, the estate uh, or the publishers have been rewriting some of it. Um, in my personal view, I think with some of that, they've gone too far. Having said that, Roald Dahl himself uh, uh, was a sensitive man. Uh, he, he wasn't perfect, but he was highly aware that what he wrote in one period of time, say when colonization was still big, uh, didn't read well later. And he himself in the 1960s began to rewrite some of the characters to one, one characters. He used uh, scurrilous African terms or uh, racist assumptions about them. And he himself started taking that out. Um, it's an interesting thing, actually, because, you know, I, I devoured Roald Dahl as a child. Absolutely my favourite favorite author. Um, and read, and he was one of the few authors you would go back and read and read and read and read and read. And actually, the, the, the prevailing sense that you get from Roald Dahl books is... Uh, there's quite a lot of strange child abuse going on. I think the twits want to glue children to a tree mm -hmm. um, and then eat them. Um, but there's also that, you know, David and Goliath feeling that yes. you have in the likes of Fantastic Mr. Fox, you have this desperately, you know, loving, kind father figure in, Doctor, in, in, in Fantastic Mr. Fox who goes and takes on Boggis, Bunce and Bean, the, the dreadful right. farmers. Yes. And you think, hang on a minute, am I... Does that undercurrent actually get missed in children or does it get planted while we don't notice? Uh, you've raised two terrific questions. Uh, in fairy tales, uh, in, and Dow has, has, um, had the magnificent ability to create modern, fresh fairy tales, you have to terrify people um, and, uh, and then you often show solutions. So which one wins? Does a child remember the terror or does a child go through that and come to the resolution? And that's a, a, a giant question. The other one is about the hidden assumptions. Uh, when I was growing up, there were uh, many uh, assumptions in books that women were emotional and that they were silly. They might be cute or to be taken care of, but they weren't uh, uh, executive material. Uh, a, a generation uh, later, uh, a lot of women entering the workforce had to face men who genuinely did not feel they were sexist thugs, but they just made these assumptions. And these assumptions are sort of hiding, floating around. Uh, this doesn't necessarily mean you have to censor or change the books. It'd be nice to just be aware that those assumptions were there. Constant, I, sorry. Go Carry on, David. No. 
Okay, given right, no more, David. Constantine, <laughs> pick up from that. Um, well, is it? I mean, there, there's a tradition of tweeting or rewriting, at least in the let's say in, in the arts, with Michelangelo's The Last Judgment, where they covered all the private parts with 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 a with a veil or putting a fig leaf, uh, and then eventually, centuries later, they come and knock off the fig leaf and paint out the the. Um, I don't think they painted out the, the, the covering of the private parts in Michelangelo. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, not, it's nothing recent. Uh, and I, I was wondering whether it's, it's not rewriting um, or is it just uh, tweaking here and there uh, that, that, that took place with, with, with Roald Dahl? Uh, uh, with Roald Dahl, the thrust of the stories is still there. And these changes are some of the manifestations. Uh, you hit on a really good point there with the with, with these hidden assumptions. So in a, a classical Greek literature, uh, uh, workers or working class people are brought in generally for comic relief. In the Bible, they're brought in for people who have souls and you need compassion for. It's a fundamental disjunct. Uh, in the film Brief Encounters, a magnificent film uh, filmed in Britain by David Lean, I think in <laughs> 1945, there's a, a, a middle or upper middle class a couple who have strong emotions and you care about them. And parallel to them in the old a Greek classical tradition, there's comic relief of a working class character, uh, the guy at the bar and, and his uh, girl, girl, to use that word, um, who do everything without serious feeling. If you grow up with films and books like that, it become, becomes for granted that why should you have an NHS for everybody? The lower orders won't appreciate or deserve it. The higher orders do. So I can see... Um, uh, the dangers of having only one approach. But rather than censorship, why not have two approaches? Why not be highly aware of Roald Dahl stories, which are great modern fables, though they have some nasty assumptions, and have positive stories showing that, you know what, immigrants or black people can be terrific also. There's also the issue that you just raised there, Constantine. We've only got about 35 seconds to explore this, but you you mentioned the fact that times change, attitudes change. We cover up with fig leaves and then we take them off again. Yes. And one wonders whether in however you know when the when the wheel comes round again that people are going to suddenly start to put Roald Dahl back in as we as we all get rather fed up or you know the the, the general consensus is you know let's just bring it back in because it, you need it warts and all I think it definitely will uh, I remember when I was a child the word gay meant being happy and it was used as being someone happy and then eventually it, it took on this uh, a negative tone and then it suddenly became a very positive tone so even words themselves change and therefore uh, the yeah and, and very quickly david and how long will it take before we all want to put all the words back into roald dahl uh, because uh, life is accelerating by the speed of electrons in our internet, I think the cycles which used to be generations will be down to uh, 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 a few months, weeks, and then uh, in the flick of an eye, uh, we can bounce back and forth. By which time the publishers have all had major cardiac arrest trying to work out what they can and can't keep in the in the, uh, in the the books. My thanks to Constantine Borrea and David Badanis, because that's all we have time for today's edition of Monocle on Sunday. Many thanks to the producer, Desiree Bandley, and our studio manager, Callum McCullough claim i'm emma nelson monocle on sunday is back next week so goodbye and enjoy the rest of your weekend